very grateful for this congregation. Um, seems like the more I'm away, the more I realize that. And when I come back, it's like, ah, whatever. Wonderful people. We appreciate you dearly. And uh, grateful for <clears throat> how this congregation has maintained its uh, unity and commitment to basic truths without um, how easily brethren can get crosswise with each other. So we're grateful for the opportunity to be a part uh, of this congregation. Uh, Tuesday night, I will be in Van Buren, Arkansas. Never been there before, anybody? <laughs> and I'm going to speak on this subject to a collection of churches that gather every year to talk about various matters, and they've asked me to speak the next three nights uh, on various aspects of changes that have been going on in Churches of Christ. And this is the one for Tuesday night, so I thought I'd try it out on you. That way I can make all the corrections before I go, okay? This is a big subject, is it not? In our country. And you may not realize this if you're younger, but uh, coming out of the turbulent 60s, there was what was called a feminist movement that really swept our nation. And uh, it uh, swept us in so many ways that the younger people don't even think about now. You know, for example, in 1965, there would have never been a police woman on duty in a dangerous situation. How many of you remember when the show Policewoman came out with Angie Dickinson. I mean, that was, just, that was just one of those, one out of a myriad of moments in American history where Hollywood and others were trying to engineer their thinking about things. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that a woman cannot be a policeman. Uh, but there were police uh, women before that, but they were not put out in harm's way in the same way that it wasn't in the military as well. My point to you is that in our country, in our culture, Gender roles in American society pretty much held firm uh, through about 200 years. And then, uh, as I said, post-World War II, things began to change. And now, by the way, those cultural currents, as always, swept through churches. And so you will find, beginning in the 60s, uh, Presbyterians and others ordaining uh, female pastors and the like. Uh, see, that would not have been done, you know, 100 years ago, 75 years ago, whatever. And now, as this has gone to seed in our country, in our culture, it's easy for Christians to just kind of go along with the status quo in our society without challenging it and making certain that we've gone to the Bible to understand God's view on these matters. And even if we come to a point in time where God's view seems surreal and bizarre because it is so out of step, out of kelter with the society in which we live, uh, we must have the courage and the commitment and the dedication to God to reaffirm his views on the matter and to make certain that we agree with them and live by them. Here's the question that I'd like for us to address in the next 30 minutes. Uh, may women in churches act as worship leaders? Uh, for example, can they get up and preach? Can they lead prayer in, in the worship assembly? Can they lead singing? 
Uh, can they participate in waiting on the Lord's Supper and serving it to the congregation? Can they teach adult classes where men and women are present? Can they stand in front of the church and read scripture aloud? And notice that these are all acts of worship. So I'm confining my remarks uh, tonight essentially to uh, worship uh, of the church. Well, there are a number of passages to which we can go, and we'll go to a few, but this is the premier passage. And until you sit down and study this chapter very carefully, give full attention to it, uh, to me it would be more difficult for you to sort out God's view on this matter. So it's a very critical passage and provides a lot of rationale. You know, God is so succinct, though. That's the astounding thing. In just a few words, he can say things that are earth-shaking, and, and it'll go over your head if you don't stop and dwell on it, concentrate, meditate, and think about it. We don't have time to give an overall context of this uh, six-chapter book, but let me just suggest to you that there are indicators in this book that help us to orient ourselves with regard to its application. What are we, uh, what's the setting of this book? What's being, uh, what is the context? Well, church life in a broad sense, because not only does he discuss worship, including the worship assembly, but he talks about you know, the work of the church. He talks about the organization of the church. This is the book that gives us the qualifications, for example, for elders and for deacons. Well, does that have to do with the church? Yes. But it's not worship assembly, per se. So really, the book deals with the life of the church. Paul stated that to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 15, when he said, I'm writing this material to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself uh, in the church. Okay, so church life is kind of the broad context of the book. Now, when we come to chapter 2, <clears throat> it's narrowed somewhat because he clearly starts talking about worship. For example, in verse 8, he, he talks about prayer. And then he proceeds to talk about uh, teaching. Uh, which is an, an act of worship, a spiritual activity that takes place uh, when the church assembles. Another feature to consider is the fact that he's very clearly in this chapter talking about gender roles, contrasting, distinguishing male and female. So that helps us to kind of get uh, the framework out of which to understand what's going on here by these contextual uh, features. Now look uh, carefully at the first several verses um, of, the, of the chapter. He begins by talking about prayer that ought to be set forth uh, in behalf of or for the purpose of uh, various individuals receiving the prayers that need to be made in their behalf. So kings, uh, those who are in authority and so forth. I have highlighted in yellow uh, the term men because Prayer made for men. God desires all men to be saved. There's one mediator between God and men, the man. This is the generic uh, word in, in the Greek, anthropos, for uh, human beings. So this could have just, any of these could have been translated, for example, uh, giving of thanks be made for all people, for all persons. That would have been a suitable translation. That's the upshot uh, of the term. But when you come to verse 8, uh, look carefully at how God, uh, here Paul says, I, I want the men to pray everywhere. I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man. The occurrence of this, these two uh, English words, 
comes from a very specific Greek word, on, uh, andros, and in the text here it's a form of it, on air, which is talking about gender. Man as male, excluding female. So already he is beginning to address this subject of the distinction between male and female when it comes to worship in the church. Notice in verse 8, this is a very strong declaration. He says, I, I want men to do the praying everywhere. Now think through this. The Bible is so logical. God is a rational being and we're made in his image. So our minds are if we won't go against it. Notice that he cannot be saying that women cannot pray everywhere. Because they can. So he has to be talking about leading in prayer. You see that's demanded in the text. Can women lead in prayer? They can, under certain circumstances, yes. But not everywhere and all the time. There are some restrictions on that. Males, on the other hand, can and are required by God to lead prayer anytime and anywhere. Why, uh, why not women anytime, anywhere? Because, this is all part of this chapter, a woman is to learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. Look at the concepts here. To teach or have authority over a male, a man. He's talking about female spiritual leadership over males. That's not permitted. Uh, the term or in this text, the underlying uh, Greek handling of that, the, the upshot of it is nor in any other way. So she's not to teach. This would be one area where she would be exercising wielding authority over man, but she's not to do it in any other area either. You know, the, new, uh, the King James obscured this, in my opinion, for maybe a, a generation or more of people. Because it said that a woman is not to usurp authority. Which then left the impression, and many brethren argued for this, uh, women can lead, exercise authority over men, if the men give their permission. It's only when the men don't give their permission that it becomes a usurpation. Right? And the underlying text does not support that whatsoever. It's a single word, authentane, and should have been simply translated to have authority over. So, in this context, Paul is saying that a woman is not to engage in worship, religious actions in which she is exercising authority over the male. But to be in silence, what does that mean? You know, again, there are different words in, in the original language, just like in English, that... Uh, have different meanings. Uh, there is a word in, in Greek that has to do with making a sound, speaking, laleo. That's not the word here. So he's not saying women are to close their mouths and not open them under any circumstance. Not that kind of silence. The term here refers to a quiet and gentle spirit or approach. In other words, he's saying if the men are to do the leading, they're to lead in prayer, they are to lead in the teaching 
and she is not to exercise authority over him, then she is to be submissive and not assert herself and exercise authority over man. That's really all this is talking about. It's talking about her demeanor, her attitude, her agreement with Paul's instructions. Now you cannot help when you read something like this, especially in our day. What? What are you saying? That sounds so bizarre. Why would God do this? Why would God place any restriction on a woman that he doesn't place on a man? Why would God expect women to interact with a man in such a way that at least in worship, and we find from Ephesians 5 in the home, the man is to be the leader? What is going on here? Now this is what is absolutely astounding to me when it comes to understanding the mind of God. And you and I need to face up to the fact that there are many people in our country and in the world that do not care about the mind of God. They do not care about the thinking of God. In fact, they reject it. Remember when Dan Barker, the atheist in his debate with Kyle Butt, uh, said whenever God told uh, Abraham to offer up his son, he said, Abraham should have said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm better than you. And you're evil and wicked to suggest such a thing. Well, I don't know what to do for such a person. Uh, if you examine the evidence and, and are forced to conclude, there really is a God. There really is. And he's the God of the Bible. And he's infinite and perfect in all of his attributes. He's, he never does anything wrong, never has done anything wrong to anybody. He's always fair. Then when you come to passages that are perplexing and maybe even rub us a little bit because we don't exactly agree that maybe that's the way it ought to be, uh, that's when we have to step back and say, wait a minute. Father knows best. God knows and we don't. We're very uh, lacking in our understanding of matters. And so we've got to digest. We've got to drink in what his spirit informs us about and allow that to shape and mold our sensibilities and our morality and our perception so that we are delighted and pleased about following God and doing what he says. Now here's the astounding thing. He gives the reason. And we might just skip right over it there real quick. He says the reason is Adam was formed first. So again, you know, you stop and say, what? What does that have to do with anything? Why is that a reason for limiting women or assigning to women a different role in her relationship with a man in the church? What's going on there? Well, let's go back and look at it. We know what he's talking about. He's talking about the creation of human beings at the very beginning. You remember how this went down. Uh, creation week, days one through six. In Genesis chapter 1, he creates, beginning with the heavens and the earth and works his way through the animal population, comes to the pinnacle and climax of creation week, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Uh, he created man in his own image. And then the text says, verse 27, male and female created he them. It's not until you turn the page to chapter 2 that you get clarification. You get an expansion or an elaboration upon that sixth day. You find out that as a matter of fact, God created the male of the species first. 
made him from the dust of the ground. So I like to point out, ladies, that men were made from dirt. Remember that. Women were not. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He became a living soul, verse 7. And then for some unspecified number of hours on that sixth day, Adam is walking around looking at the created order. He involves himself in the uh, naming of the general categories of animals. And uh, you remember what happens. Um, God says to him, he actually states this twice, but clearly in verse 18 he says, listen buddy, it's not good for you to be alone. See, right, that, that says a mouthful about uh, the male psyche. Because here's God's inspired commentary on the matter. And it's not that man was deficient, the male was deficient, God created him this way. And so God says, I am going to create for you, King James has, and help meet for him. That's two words. We put it together and say a help meet. In the original, the language is, I'm going to create a helper, which could have been translated an assistant, an associate that is meet, that is fit or suitable for you. Now think through this. This is, this is earth-shaking. God is creating a woman who is designed by him to so function as a counterpart to the male that she is complementary to him and able to fill the gaps and the voids that he by creation possesses. That's astounding. Even God's saying... It's not good for a man to be alone. Men don't do well on their own. I mean, look at the mountain men out west and, and all the saloons and shooting and everything that went on. It took uh, righteous women to come out and bring civilization and so forth. So when Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, here's why God wants women to be submissive to men in the home and the church and why he wants the men to stand up and take the lead. It's because he designed it that way at the creation. See, do you, do you not see that God could have created Eve first? Or he could have created Adam and Eve simultaneous, couldn't he? He didn't. Why? Because he was wanting to communicate these concepts of creation. That the male by divine design is wired and intended, even if he shirks it and fails, he's intended to be the leader. We don't have time to talk about what all that means. Most men think that means boss and dictator. I get to tell my wife what to do. That is not what the words refer to in the Bible. It would be more like protector, guardian, nurturer, one who sees to the needs of and cares for. There's the leadership of the male, according to the Bible. But this was all set up this way by God. And notice... <clears throat> it gets even more specific about how she then came into this world. Once God said, okay, now I'm going to create a woman, how, how could he have done that? He could have created her out of dirt too. Or he could have um, gotten some other substance and fashioned her, just spoke her into existence. He didn't. He made her out of him. Why? He's wanting to communicate this interrelationship. 
that he intended from creation. Paul uh, went into this matter somewhat with the uh, Corinthian church as well. You know, Timothy is the preacher in Ephesus, and Paul writes 1 Timothy to him, but then he also wrote to the Corinthians and brings up this subject of gender roles because there were problems in the official worship assembly of the church. Uh, there were women that were standing up, and they, were, they had been inspired by God to speak in tongues and to prophesy and to do some other things, so they were standing up in the assembly and doing that. I can hear our brethren today. In fact, they argue this, that God wants everybody to use their gifts. That's why uh, uh, Rick Hatchley said we should move the instrument into Richland Hills Church out there in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, God wants us to use our gifts. Well, yeah, God wants you to use your gifts, but he wants you to use the gifts that he wants you to use in the way that he wants you to use it when he wants you to use it. You might be good about uh, driving a race car. You're going to drive that in here into worship and sit over there and rev the engine several times? That's my gift. It's ridiculous. You've got to govern your assessment of Scripture based upon what God says on the matter. Well, we don't have time again to go into great detail on this. There's so many questions that people have about head coverings and so forth. But look at these. These, these points jump out at, out, out at you when you examine the text. For example, his use of the word head at the very beginning of the chapter. What are we talking about here? Well, the word does not mean source or origin or anything like that. It's talking about your assigned position of authority. It's not talking about worth, value, skill, or talent. Man is to, to be the head of the woman in the sense that he is to wield authority in certain areas that God has assigned him those responsibilities. Notice this cannot be talking about superiority and inferiority. Why? Because the head of Christ is God. Are they equal in deity, value, worth, skill, whatever you want to bring up? Yeah, they're both infinite. So they can't be talking about that. It's talking about this subordination principle. Did not Jesus subordinate himself to the Father by taking on human flesh, coming to the planet, and fulfilling a, an assigned responsibility? That's exactly what he did. Well, he says that's the way it is with male and female, too. The head of man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and everybody's got their assigned responsibility, and they are to fit into the ranking as God has given it and exercise authority as he has given you to exercise. Now look how he nails this down. His argumentation is, man is not from. Your English word from is from the uh, Greek preposition ek, out of. That's what the preposition means. Was the woman literally, uh, physically out of the man? Or was the man literally and physically out of the woman? The woman was taken out of man. God cut him open and took part of his a rib and closed him back up and out of that part fashioned a woman. All by deliberate divine intention to communicate these creation concepts. And he's very specific in the way that he uh, addresses the matter. Look what else he says. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Remember? Here's the man, he's alive and well, he's living life, and God says, not good for you to be alone. I need to make somebody for you. 
Well, isn't a man for a woman also? Yes. But there's a very special and unique way in which a woman was created for the man, not vice versa. Because that's how it went down at the very beginning. By divine design. Even to the point where once God completed fashioning this woman, the text says he brought her to the man. He presents her to him. And he says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. See, all of that is implying an, a relationship that involves male leadership, male authority, and submission by the woman. Absolutely astounding how he's woven into these texts uh, these fine points of creation. Uh, it's also interesting to me that... Um, lest men get puffed up and think, okay, you know, I get to boss everybody around. Uh, Paul goes out of his way to say, now wait a minute, just because the woman is ek, the man, out of the man, every man since Adam has been dia, is the Greek preposition, through the woman, right? All men, except Adam, came through a woman. That's all by creation as well. And shows we're not talking about value, worth, talent, skill, superiority versus inferiority. That is not in the discussion. In fact, Galatians 3, 27, 28 makes it clear that man and woman are absolutely equal in their standing before God, their access to salvation, uh, their spiritual and moral worth, in God's sight. That's the Bible teaching on the matter. But it does not follow that we do not have separately assigned roles and responsibilities. Now, returning to 1 Timothy 2. What happens then when men and women do not assume the roles that they were created to fulfill? Notice he's not giving a second reason why the men are to lead in the church and the women are to be submissive. He's explaining what happens when they do not follow this creation principle of the male being formed first. He says, the woman being deceived fell into transgression. He's not talking about um, a woman's gullibility, women more gullible than men. That, in fact, I would argue that's not true. Uh, men have been duped into a lot of things, and it's usually by a scheming woman like Jezebel or, or uh, what's her name, uh, that Samson got a hold of there. This isn't a matter of knowledge or uh, cleverness. This is a matter of she decided to listen to Satan and go along with what Satan said. Why? Because she was stepping out of her role of being uh, guided and, and uh, collaborated with by her husband and consequently, that led to her being deceived and she sinned. He's not emphasizing deception. He's emphasizing the fact that she sinned by partaking of the fruit. And look at how he then dealt with that. And not only did he fail to say to her as she was being tempted. Look at Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 6. Not only did he not intercede on his wife's behalf. Honey, don't listen to this guy. Remember what God said on the matter. He's trying to tell us that it's this way, but we know it's this way because this way, see what I'm saying? That would be a leader. He didn't do that. 
Where was he, out fishing or something? No, look at chapter 3, verse 6. He was right there with her. And allowed himself then, and not, not only to let her fall into sin, but then when she turned to involve him and implicate him, he went right along with that. I'm convinced, folks, that that means that Adam sinned before Eve. I don't believe sin entered the world for the first time through Eve. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 say sin entered the world through Adam. Why? How so? He abdicated his divinely assigned role and responsibility, which then left her vulnerable, and then she sins. Well, you can study that on your own. But when you fail to face up to the fact that Adam was formed first, then gender roles get reversed, and everybody becomes vulnerable to Satan's ploys. Now look at Genesis 3, verse 16 for further clarification. By the way, when God confronts the sin that occurred on that day, who does he hit first? You would think Eve, you know, she ate the fruit first. That's not what he does. He goes right to the man. Why? Because he was responsible. He's the leader. See, if men really knew what was involved in being a leader of a home, they, they don't want the job. Remember Bill Cosby said that about rearing kids, his wife sent home all day with all those kids. He said, I've seen the job and I don't want it. <laughs> well, that was funny, but also tragic because that's, that's part of male responsibility. He's ultimately responsible for the tone of the home and how things are going. And he can't blame uh, his wife when things go awry if he is shirking his responsibility. And notice that's the first thing he does when God confronts him. He says, well, you know, it's the woman you gave to me. Like God was at fault here because he gave him a woman that he was in need of. God didn't do anything wrong there. And you remember then when, she, when he confronts the woman, she points to the snake. But the, <clears throat> the point is that Ultimately, the man was held culpable for what was going down. Now, look what, when, he then, when God then turns to the woman and says, okay, here's what I got to say to you. The first thing he points out is uh, he refers to the pain that accompanies the birth, natural birth of a child. You cannot tell from the language in the original whether this means that she would not have had pain when giving birth, but now she would, or whether she would have had pain, but now it's going to be a lot worse. No way to, to settle that. Hebrew scholars can't settle it. But that's not uh, what I want you to key in on. Look at this, this statement. This is God speaking to Eve. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What in the world is he talking about? And I've seen some pretty wild things about, uh, okay, because she sinned, then God's punishing her and going to put her under the thumb of a man and stuff like that. I don't believe that's what's taking place here. If you were to uh, look over in chapter 4, just turn the page to chapter 4, the text moves now to the next major historical incident of Cain and Abel. They're grown, grown men at this point, or boys, and they're each offering their sacrifice to God, you remember. And a statement is made in verse uh, 7 where God is speaking to Cain. And it's, it's not exactly the same in the Hebrew, but it's very close. For all practical purposes, they are parallel grammatical statements. Let's compare them. 
Here is what uh, God said to Cain. Sin, he, you know, God personifies sin, speaks of it as if it's a person, uh, figuratively. Sin will continue. Its desire is for you. Sin will continue to seek to take the lead in your life and direct you. Isn't that a pretty good description of what we all subject ourselves to? Sin wants us as if it's sentient or conscious. But what you need to do is assert yourself. Take charge of your life and do not allow sin uh, to control it. Isn't that what God was saying to Cain? Now compare that with what God says to Eve. Your desire shall be to your husband. That is, you will continue to desire to want to take the lead in these spiritual matters, like you did when Satan came to you and coaxed you into it. But don't allow that to happen. He shall rule over you. That is, you need to allow your husband to serve in the capacity, in the role that God has assigned him. Let him lead. Let him be the leader and the governor of the home. Well, it seems to me that what God is doing here is helping us to see, once again, he's reaffirming the order of creation that he set up when he created the first man and the first one. That does not mean that women are less intelligent than men. What do the IQ uh, tests typically show? Women score higher than men. Okay? We're not talking about intelligence. Women are very talented in a variety of areas. I know women that can lead singing better. They can stand up and do public speaking better than men, or as good as men. Some, you know, some women superior to some men, vice versa. So we're not even talking about who's more capable of doing what is to be done. Women will naturally desire to give their input to the man, and that's good. See, that's part of why God said, you need some help here. You need help, buddy. And a woman is God's answer to that need. That's why Proverbs 18 says, if a man finds a good woman, a good wife, that, that's a blessing from God. That's a good thing. And she's not to uh, be a, you know, a dominated, uh, keep your mouth shut until I want to hear what you have to say and all that. And there are men that act that way, but that's sinful. That is outright sinful. And it's a failure to understand um, the rich contributions that God intends for a woman to make to a home and a marriage. Uh, so she should participate in uh, matters pertaining to the home, but it's up to the man to have the wisdom, the savvy, the initiative, the fortitude to take that information and weigh it and assimilate it graciously and to guide his family spiritually. Let me put it another way. When we stand before God at the end of time, women are going to answer for their behavior and what they've done. Everybody is. But in God's sight, when it comes to the relationship between a man and a woman and the orchestration of the home, the buck stops with the man. I've known men who have so conducted themselves that they've run their women off 
two other men. And of course, the church sees that. <gasps> well, it's obvious who's guilty here. We need to disfellowship the woman. She's out, she's out living in adultery. And many times, maybe even most of the time, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm just suggesting, at the end of time, God's going to put the blame on the man. Because we didn't see all that went on behind the scenes. The way he treated her to cause her to reach a point of desperation and to abandon the situation. Men have that kind of power. To make a woman happy or to make a woman miserable. And I'm telling you, it's a big, big responsibility for which he is going to give account. Because that's how he set it up at the very beginning. He arranged the human race this way. That's incredible. God designed the human race to function in terms of its fundamental building block, which is the home, as God intended it to be. That's why... Um, the, New Test the Old and the New Testament say so much about uh, marriage and relationships and how so many young people in our day uh, go into it completely unprepared, inadequate. Uh, there are spiritual clashes and the like. And uh, the statistics are very clear in our country. Uh, since about 1965, uh, the divorce rate skyrocketed and it continues. It's leveled off some, but it's still about half of all marriages that are contracted end in divorce. Sometime in the lifetime of that marriage. Those are dismal, catastrophic stats. And it has to be ultimately and primarily because the members of the family are not functioning the way God intended them to function with everybody assuming the responsibilities and the roles that God intends, the, the obligations and the tasks. And uh, when you think about it, God has ordered all of human civilization this way. He's ordered the church that way. You have elders, they are the authority figures. Are they to be dictators and bosses and oppressive? Of course not. But they are to be leaders and they do wield authority. And then you have different other aspects and jobs and works and assigned responsibilities within the church. He's done it in the home. He's done it in the church. He's done it in schools. He's done it in businesses. He's done it in governments. There is a proper functioning of all of those assigned responsibilities in order for things to run smoothly and to function efficiently. And that certainly applies to the home. All right, let's close. Here's some summary, and there's so much more on this subject uh, in the Bible, but notice uh, some broad generalization conclusions. Uh, gender roles in the home and the church were decided by God at creation. I really want to emphasize this, because uh, the commentators, especially the femin evangelical feminists, they call themselves, in churches will say, oh, you know, that was just culture. You know, Paul was kind of a chauvinist himself, and, and he was, you know, back then women were oppressed and blah, blah, blah. The Bible never assigns to this relationship the concept of culture. It makes it very clear this is a matter of creation, not culture. Culture only enters in when there are civilizations and societies where in their culture they have certain practices or customs that either 
undergird and encourage the Bible principle or they detract from it. There are societies, for example, in our day, and obviously it, it was the case in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, where a woman was to, they, they believed that women should veil their heads. By head, they didn't mean from here up, like wear a hat or something. They meant your head as opposed to your body. They were to veil themselves. That comes through in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, that is the case in Muslim societies all over the world today. And uh, it's directly tied to gender, the relationship between male and female, and how they interact with each other. And uh, cultures, so you see if a Christian goes to such a culture where the society says if a woman doesn't veil herself, she does not have a submissive spirit toward her husband. Well, what, would a, what should a Christian do in such a society? In order to undergird the biblical principle, um, even though that particular custom is not mandated by God. To show you that uh, the concept of veiling, a female veiling of the head is not a scriptural concept. I mean, it's not anti-scriptural, but it's not mandated. I turn to Genesis chapter 38, where at that point in culture, during patriarchal period, a veiled woman was a prostitute. So you see every culture has differed throughout history as to what signs and symbols it uses in order to accentuate various principles. And you would have to be sensitive to that. But my point is, the way God created male and female, have you ever wondered why did God even create gender? Why don't you just make everybody, what, unisex? I, it's hard to even grasp what that would be like. Well, that's one of the things that we can sort out when we see. But the point is, he made male and female. And that is incredibly uh, deliberate and ought to be observed, paid attention to. Our society has shifted more and more and more from the 60s, trying to eradicate gender, trying to eliminate it. This tra transgender stuff is only exacerbating the situation and confusing it further. All of that is contrary to the will of God. Because at creation, he wanted there to be clearly male and female. Do you know he distinguished them so much? Physically, that we are genetically different. Not merely in the number of chromosomes. That, that's about as clear as you can get, where we know what's a male and what's a female. But in many other areas, the... the our bodies are completely different. They, they were designed to, to work different ways. Men can't have, you know, with all of our advancements in bizarre technology, men can't give birth to babies. They can't do it. God designed it. Did you know men have more skin, uh, thicker skin than women? Women, therefore, are more subject to temperature variations than men. And on and on we could go. The differences are stunning by divine design. Even used, God even used the, uh, through Peter, used the statement weaker vessel. Obviously not referring to intelligence or anything, but to physical differences. Look how they've tried to, how many movies have you watched where uh, they have these women out there and, and some big huge guy comes up and he's, and man, she starts punching him and knocking him across the room and everything. That does not happen. 
That's all Hollywood theatrics. The laws of physics are against that. But it shows you the extent to which Hollywood is trying to create an illusion. And in the process, they're thumbing their nose at the God of the Bible. He not only set it up this way, but he wants us to embrace it and celebrate it. And by the way, it's the only way people can be happy. As people turn away from God, they're not going to be happy. He wants men to lead in the home and the church. He wants women to respect and support male leadership in the home and the church. But notice this also, ladies. God wants women to focus on their extremely critical roles that he has assigned them. When women do not do that in any country, in any culture, in human history, those societies go down. Now, I'm telling you, they do. And no church can rise above its women. Uh, no a school, uh, no society, no country. Uh, that's just the way it is. They were created to be an integral part of male functioning. And if they shirk that and want to become men or do other things, and not only are they pursuing illicit goals, but they are failing to do what is absolutely essential to sustaining a civilization, a society, and a family. America is in dire straits right now. And one of the main reasons, I believe in eternity, when we look back, we're going to see it wasn't what was going on in, in um, Washington and Hollywood and all that, other than what I'm about to say. And that is that women fail to be the roles, uh, fulfill the roles that God intended them to fulfill. As our society, for example, has become more modest, where women dress in such a way that they expose uh, what previous generations referred to as their charms. Uh, that's led to the degradation of the feminine gender, and it's led to men being less controlled, and just on and on and on we could go. We're seeing the destruction of our civilization, uh, largely because uh, men and women are not functioning the way God intended. Well, if you would like more on this subject, go to our website, click on America's Culture War. You can also click on Doctrinal Matters. And then on the subtopics on the side, click on Role of Women. Uh, there's, th I don't know why we only have three articles, but there's three that uh, covered this subject if you're interested in further study. Thank you for your kind attention. The gospel is very clear with regard to how we are to accept Christ through faith, repentance, and confession of Christ with the mouth. We must um, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. And as Christians, when we have so conducted ourselves in such a way publicly that we need to come before the church, that opportunity and that privilege is always available to every single one of us uh, when we need to avail ourselves of that great privilege. Hope these uh, matters are encouraging and helpful to you. Please take your Bible and study these matters further. Let's sing this hymn of invitation while together we stand.